as we open your word. We ask it in your name's sake. Amen. A Methodist minister and a taxi driver both died and went to heaven. St. Peter was there at the pearly gates waiting for them, and he first of all said to the taxi driver, you come along with me. And the taxi driver did what he was told, and he followed St. Peter, and St. Peter said, this is where you're going to be. And it was an enormous mansion. It had got a cinema in the basement. It had got an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Wow, said the taxi driver, what a great place to spend eternity. St. Peter then came back to the Methodist minister and he took him along and he said, this is where you're going to be. It was a little sort of shack really with a bunk bed and an ancient black and white television. I, I think you're a little mixed up, said the Methodist minister. After all, it's me that's been at church all Sundays. It's me who's preached all those sermons. I'm the minister. Yes, that's true, said St. Peter. But during your sermons, the people slept. When the taxi driver was driving, the people all prayed. (laughs) Well, I don't know what heaven would be like. But here in John chapter 14 and verse 2, Jesus speaks of it as his father's house. His father's house. What a comforting and homely image. We often read this passage at funerals when people are seeking comfort and peace after the loss of a loved one. But here, when Jesus originally spoke these words, he wasn't talking about somebody else's death. He was talking and looking forward to his own death. And this leads the disciples to worry. In fact, these first five verses are all about worry. And that's my first point, the worry of the disciples. I think it's still true that people feel a little awkward or upset if a loved one starts to talk about their death. If I start to talk about my death in the office, my PA Ollie gets very annoyed with me and she says, I reject that talk. I reject it. Others will change the subject. And uh, even for Christians, it's hard to speak about death. Because most of us live in a tension of faith. We believe, but we also know that we, we can never be sure. And that's what the faith business is all about. That's why it's called faith business. We have the faith, but we also still have the questions. What happens when I die? Is there life after death? Will I see my loved ones again? Will God welcome me to heaven? Or will he judge me harshly? In response, Jesus says here, verses 1 and 2, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house 
are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I think about preparation. I would just like to say a public word of thanks to my dear wife, Viddy, sitting here in the choir. Because when we have a guest preacher or other visitors, we don't put them up in a hotel or take them out to a restaurant. We welcome them to the manse. It's been great having Scott and Dawn McDermott with us for 12 days. They're great fun. We've had a great time together. But I have to say that Biddy flew in from New Zealand on the Wednesday evening and they arrived for 12 days on the Friday morning. And it takes a lot of effort preparing. And preparation is a sign of love and care. And that preparation is what Jesus says here that he is doing for you and he's doing for me. He says, I will go and prepare a place for you. Isn't that just great? Jesus is preparing a place for you. And we're told here that there's many rooms, so there'll be plenty of space for us. And more than that, we're told that Jesus will come and take us there. And isn't it always better if we're going to a new place, if someone who knows it and is familiar with it actually welcomes us and takes us there. These are such loving and comforting and reassuring words of Jesus. But the disciples are actually thrown a bit. And they're thrown by what Jesus says in verse 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, I'm sure all the disciples were thinking it, but it's Thomas who actually responds to what Jesus says because Thomas is always thinking, he's always wondering, he's always questioning, he's always seeking answers, he's always worrying. So, of course, it's Thomas who asks, verse 5 here, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And here we move from my first point, the worries of the disciples, to my second point, verses 6 to 11, the way of Jesus. In this 21st century European culture in which we find ourselves and of which Jesus, uh, of which London is at the heart, nothing is absolute. Everything is relative. The only thing which will not be tolerated is intolerance. And spiritual certainty is often interpreted as intolerance. How can Jesus say he's the only way? To claim that goes against the spirit of this age. Christianity is seen as just one faith, of equal value to Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or whatever. And we take down from the spiritual shelf that which suits us and do a bit of pick and mix and end up with that that we feel comfortable with, that which we like. Well, you can do that if you want to. Nobody's stopping you. But the Bible is very clear 
that the reason Jesus had to come is that the Jewish law was not bringing people into a living relationship with God. And the Bible is equally clear that nothing needs to be added to the coming of Jesus. No further prophet, no further teaching, no new special way of enlightenment. Jesus is enough. Now, of course, the key response which comes to this, other than this accusation of narrow-mindedness, is a sincere and very genuine response that this seems very unfair. What about the good living and deeply spiritual person from another faith, some of whose quality of life puts most of us to shame? Also, what about the person we know and love, the family member or friend who's made no commitment, confession of faith in Jesus Christ? And we can see that they have no Christian faith because of the circumstances of their upbringing or because of a tragedy that struck their life or even because of the way that they've been treated by another Christian or by the church. With their life experience, no wonder that they find it almost impossible to become a Christian. All I can say in the face of such searching and heart-rending questions is that I do not know who will go to the Father's house of heaven and who will not. What I'm very glad of is that it's no human decision of mine nor of anyone else's as to what anyone's eternal destiny might be. But that the one who makes that judgment, our living God, is all-knowing, all-just, and all-loving. And as we read in Scripture, Genesis 18 and verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If I get to heaven, it will be because of the grace of God shown me in the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if when I arrive in heaven, there are many Hindus and Muslims and Jews and people of every other faith under the sun, I will rejoice in that. And I will wonder again at the breadth of the love of God and the depth of his grace. And I do believe that some who've never heard of Jesus in a real way and thus never had the opportunity to respond, will be judged as to how they respond to the light that they do have. How they respond to the Jesus who they've never heard of, but who in their heart of hearts, perhaps unbeknown to them, they long for. Well, that may or may not be. But what I know as a preacher is that the scripture here is very clear. Jesus says in verse 6 here, no one comes to the Father except through me. So as a preacher, I need to operate, as a church, we need to operate with the urgent truth that people need to hear and to know Jesus Christ. 
Because in Jesus alone is there forgiveness. For Jesus alone died upon the cross. In Jesus alone there is new direction for living. There's a new heart for loving. There's a new vision for the transformation of our society. And every person here on earth, a person of no faith or a person of another faith, will be the better if they put their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. If, in the long-term view of eternity, I have this wrong, if the church has it wrong, then great. I'm all for more people getting into heaven. But in the meantime, we act and work and pray on the precept that Jesus is indeed the only way. We don't say that out of arrogance. Look at the life of Jesus. There's no arrogance there. He was the man who knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. He was the man who spoke of himself as the servant come amongst us. The man who just doesn't point us to an arrogant God, but to a God who comes to dwell among us. But he talks about truth and the way and the life. And he's not just talking about something outside him. He's talking about himself. The way, the truth, the life. Here we see the way of Jesus. And then my third and last points here in verses 12 to 14, the wonders of the church. This is a verse for here and now. This is a verse for you and for me. This is a verse for this church here and our life together. And Jesus says here in verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I think the key to understanding this verse is the last sentence, because I go to the Father. The ministry of Jesus was locked into history. It was locked into one time. It was locked into one place. It was locked into one set of personal encounters. It was also a ministry which was set largely in a rural community and largely in a religious community. Through the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, and through the release of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that ministry is now across the world. 2.1 billion people follow Jesus. That's a third of the world's population. From the outworking of the Christian faith have come Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hospitals, schools, social projects, feeding programs. And on a wider scale, it could be argued that much good governance is rooted in the Christian faith. That's why it's so foolish that recent governments here in the UK have tried so hard to jettison and loosen the Christian values of our society. 
But if a local Christian congregation is meant to be a reflection of the values of the kingdom of God, that also means that we should be about that as we week together here week by week in Westminster. It means that it's more than just gathering together. It's more than just singing hymns and saying prayers. It's more than just Bible readings and sermons. We should be a community where we're open to God and what the Holy Spirit wants to do, where God is allowed to act among us, where lives are touched and transformed, where priorities are reshaped, where the sick find healing, where the lost find direction, where the stressed find peace, where the weeping find comfort, where the seeking find faith. This is not so people will think, well, this is a great church. Rather, it's what it says here in verse 13. It's so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. We meet in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we operate in his name and in the power of the Holy Spirit, God is glorified. Now we've had our friend, the Reverend Dr. Scott McDermott and three of his team across from the United States for 12 days. And we've seen God work in a wonderful way. We've seen a significant number of people healed or finding partial healing. Others finding faith for the first time. And others help in their lives. And I think that means that we now face a difficult choice as a congregation. Do we heave a collective sigh of relief that now we can go back to church as we know it? Do we say that such a work of God only happens when we have a team of special people come across and visit us? Do we allow ourselves to be overcome by the attack of the evil one that always follows after times of blessing? When after seeing God at work, we fall out and argue about trivial things in the life of the church and begin to lose the blessing? Or rather... Do we ask what God might be saying to us as to how we best move forward as a church? Well, I believe God often gives hints and encouragements as to where we should be going. Let me share one with you. One of the newly born babies from our congregation has been in hospital. She's been unwell because she stopped passing bowel motions. And thus, she was having to have her stomach washed out regularly to help her do that. She'd been in hospital for four days when one of our prayer healing team called at the hospital. As that person left, he prayed with the little baby. And within an hour, she passed a bowel motion. And then several several more. And is now back home again. That's the sort of experience that Jesus is talking about here. Here in verse 12, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. 
This should not be extraordinary to do what Jesus was doing. This should be our everyday experience to see God at work. And as people see God at work, see his work happening, then the faith of the congregation is built up and those looking on are drawn to faith themselves. So to help us in this process, we'll have the prayer healing team operating after the final blessing, Sunday by Sunday. So that when people feel the need of prayer, not just for healing, but for any reason at all, they can come forward and receive. Some weeks, probably none. Other weeks, there might be a number. Now, this is not to say that there will be a special call for folk to come forward every week. There will not be. Such times will remain as to when one of us preachers feels the Spirit move and gives such a a call for people to come forward during the service as a sign of a further step of commitment. It's not that. We should keep doing that if we feel the Spirit move, but not as a regular thing. No, this prayer for healing, for faith, for forgiveness, for guidance, for whatever needs to become part of our regular rhythm of worship as we move forward gently into the general expectation that week by week, God will work among us through the power of his Holy Spirit. So let me conclude and sum up. Here in John chapter 14, we see the worries of the disciples. Worries that are very often our own. We see the way of Jesus, the one way in which we're all challenged to walk. And we see the wonders of the church. May we see them day by day, week by week, here in this place and in our daily walk with God. Thanks be to him. Amen. We stand to sing.